So welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one for me. Uh, he has been one of the great references of my life and uh, business-wise as well. His name is Vern Arnish, the CEO of Scaling Up and the founder of the Entrepreneurs Organization. Vern, welcome to the show. Mike, it's good to be here. Or Miguel, I know you as both. It was so much fun <laughs> in Portugal. I, I, I'm in love with that country for sure. Absolutely. Everyone knows uh, who Vern Arnish uh, is, but uh, how would you like to introduce yourself? Um, you know, I grew up around entrepreneurs. Uh, my grandparents were entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur. And so it was just kind of in my blood. And what happened is he scaled a very rapid company with his partners, and then they lost it all in the 73 recession. And Mike, he never recovered. And it really destroyed him. It broke up our family. And I thought, you know what? If we can keep that from happening with any other entrepreneur on the planet, we have done some good work. So I ended up in this field back in 1982, and it's been going on. My next year will be 40th anniversary of helping companies scale up. So that's a little bit of the background. Founded EO in 87, launched its executive program at MIT in 91. And it was really over those 10 years that we developed this content that is now today scaling up. It was interesting. There's a lot of stuff on how to start up, you know, 11,000 startups every hour in the world. And I have an MBA I'm supposed to teach you how to run a big company, but there was really no parenting manual for how do you grow up a company. And exactly. so over 10 years, we, we worked those tools with a thousand uh, pretty successful and actually went on to be very successful entrepreneurs. And that culminated in the first book in 2002, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And then we updated it a dozen years later. And today about, about 80, we're just now approaching 80,000 companies around the world are utilizing the tools. Quite impressive. So I'm sure that the majority of our audience already knows a bit uh, about the framework and the, and the four pillars, people, execution, cash, and strategy. But anyway, would you like to give us an overview of uh, the amazing framework that you have put it together? Yeah, I really, it came from Jim Collins' good to great work. He said, if you want to go from good to three times good, and that's an interesting stat. The real measure of a great privately held, many family-owned businesses, as you know, in Europe, where you're reaching you know, quite a few folks, and you've got VC-backed and other kind of companies, is three to five times industry average profitability. And so he said you have to have disciplined people engaged in disciplined thought through disciplined action. So we, we said people, strategy, execution, and then later on, because growth sucks cash, uh, exactly. we added cash. So there's the, the four decisions. And there are right and wrong answers, and you've got to get those nailed. And so that became the framework for our tools. I still have in my mind, and I think that, I, uh, that I've learned this from you, so kind of having the right people on the right seats, so people focused on the right priorities, strategy, 
executing them at a very good cadence, let's say, execution with the appropriate uh, cash position or appropriate full for each stage of growth cash, right? So it's kind of the summary, just one sentence. <laughs> oh. Yeah, we like to say it, right people doing the right things right. Exactly. And, and, and then just don't run out of cash, otherwise it's... it's <laughs> good point. I, I love that summary, even better. That's that's really great. So we, we always discuss free critical ingredients to scale, but today I, I would like to go a little bit more ad hoc and to leverage your experience and what you see out in the market. And those free critical ingredients that we always discuss on the show are number one, radical focus, um, number two, world-class leadership, and number three, uh, an execution operating system for each stage of growth. So let's start with uh, radical focus. So we all know that in order to scale a business, we need to kill complexity and we need to double down on what works instead of reinventing the wheel again and again and again. So what, what would be some of your advice for uh, CEOs and leadership teams that want to scale? Yeah, well, my favorite phrase there is the riches are in the niches. niches. And that's what you want to be able to go after. And we've actually formulated what we call the 770 rule. Because the first mistake entrepreneurs make is they think everybody's their customer. And <laughs> it's going after everyone. And by the way, in, initially, what got you here won't get you there. In the beginning, you say yes to everybody. And even if you can't do what they want, you run back to your team and say, we need the revenue, let's figure it out. So I get that when you're in the startup phase, you've got to try a lot of things. But when, as Jeffrey Moore says, when you cross the chasm, when you're ready now to scale, the key is you've got to now radically say no to a lot of opportunities that are coming your way. And by then, you should have figured out what is your ideal customer. I, one of my favorite stories, we hosted Nate, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, who I got to know back in Barcelona when he and I keynoted uh, the big mobile world conference together. And what was interesting is he shared how they really stumbled for the first five years. And finally, when they talked their way into Y Combinator, Paul Graham's uh, incubator, Paul came up to him one day and said, look, who are your best customers? Or no, he goes, where are your best customers? And they're like, well, everybody, like right everywhere is our best customer. He goes, no, you're not <laughs> understanding the question. Right now, you've been at it almost six years. Where do you have the most customers? And they're like, sheepishly answer, New York City. They had 20 beds in New York. That was it after six years of doing battle in the, in the marketplace. And so even though they were Silicon Valley based, Paul said, pack your bags, you're moving to New York. You're going to literally live with those customers and be an Airbnb. They could check in and said, you're going to have to do two things. Figure out what, what's wrong with the business model. Because uh, otherwise, if you're not scaling, there's something wrong with the business model. You have it nailed. <laughs> and number two, you got to figure out who's your best customer. And stay in New York till you 10x. And so they did. They stayed focused. I think you have to make it locally. Uh, even if you're a high-tech, you know, fast-growth company. And they took that from 20 beds to 200 beds. They figured out what was wrong and fixed it. And then the rest is history. They, they, they scaled after that point. So we like to, to, to finalize with this 770 rule. I like to point out that just two months prior to Steve Jobs' untimely death, Apple hit its highest market cap. It was the number one market cap company in the world. And at that time, they had a global market share of 7%. Yet, they had over 50% of the industry's profitability. 
Let's speed forward as a, you know, hit two trillion in market cap. They have a global WAPI market share of 14%, yet they have almost 70% of the industry's profitability. So we really encourage companies to go after profit share, not market share. And even if you're the highest high tech company on the planet, it's profit share, not market share. Think about Amazon. They only have 2% mm -hmm. global market share of retail. That's why I think they've got a lot of runway to get up to just Ikea's 7% global market share. Mm -hmm. Riches are in the niches. Great summary. That, that's, that's amazing. And uh, really uh, still on, on the business model, I know that you are very passionate and you always speak on all your, all your talks about pricing. And we don't pay uh, enough attention to, to pricing as part of the business model, right? Yeah, you know, it's, we had, it, we've, for 50 some years, there was really more uh, demand than there was supply. And so I don't want to take anything away from companies, particularly out throughout Europe that are hundreds of years old. Uh, but if you could just show up and deliver, you could get the business. And the goal was supply chain management, you could, who could run around the planet quickest to get the, you know, do it better, faster, cheaper. Well, in 2007, what really precipitated the financial crisis was a significant demographic shift. For the first time, because of additional middle class coming online, there is now actually more supply than demand in almost every industry. And as a result, it's not by accident, all the unicorns, all those companies that have gone from zero to a billion in about half the time us mere mortals take have two things in common. One of those is they focus more on the demand side of the equation, mm -hmm. not on the supply side. In fact, they don't supply anything. What they really do is understand the customer so deeply that they then drive that demand to all of the suppliers. And they use that knowledge to set price, demand-based pricing. So let's go back to Amazon. You know, the standard retailer has a sticker on the, the product and you know, the only time they change it is when they got to discount it to get it out the door. On Amazon, the prices are changing dynamically okay. every hour, as they have with my book. Uh, if you think about the traditional taxis there in Barcelona that I would take all the time, it's a standard price per metered eighth of a kilometer. Yet what did Uber and Lyft do is said, no, we're going to change that to a demand-based price where it'll be inexpensive to get to the stadium, but try to get home. Uh, <laughs> when you try to try to book it. And so the smart companies, and so I'll just give you one last example. So we have an e-commerce client out of Silicon Valley. They actually are in a very commoditized space. And so they had their traditional 4% profitability margins on 190 million in revenue in 2019. We then, they then brought us in uh, just before the crisis hit to advise them. And one of the things that was happening as they approached this latest holiday season, the end of 2020, is they had these 2 million catalogs that they were getting ready to send out to their customer. Even though we're e-commerce, they still used direct mail, which can be a powerful tool, but they had the prices printed in the catalog and we convinced them. And to their, to their credit, they trusted us. They shredded 2 million of those catalogs and quickly reprinted without the prices and went to a demand-based pricing model. That way you sell what you have and you don't sell what you don't have. Now, what were the results? 
2019, 190 million in revenue. 2020, 240 million in revenue. So they, they increased revenue by 50 million. But more importantly, they went from an EBITDA of 8 million, you know, kind of a 4% profitability on a highly commoditized product on 190 million to 41 million in EBITDA. Wow. They over 5X'd their profitability. So almost all that revenue growth of 50 million converted into profitability, which obviously converts into cash. And they're looking at a really successful 2021 moving forward. They'll tell you the key was they got much more sophisticated in pricing. And that's what demand, knowledge about the demand side, more than your competitors is a strategic advantage, particularly when it comes to pricing. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really a great point. And something that you also discuss a lot that I, I think that we are getting there finally, which is yeah. the importance of creating an ecosystem and a community, right? Uh, kind of defining what are the main influencers. So if you could share with with, with the Skillup community uh, more about that, I think that everyone will enjoy. Well, um, we're just wrapped up a book this week on scaling up compensation. Little side note, I see compensation internally having the same importance as pricing externally. It's a pricing strategy. It's a pricing decision. And by the way, we get compensation plans as bad as we get pricing. So that's one book we're finishing. But the book I'm writing now is what I call the top five, this is a working title, top five leadership KPIs. What are the five things the top leaders of any scale-up ought to be focused on? And the number one is not the number of minutes, but the number of hours that you're spending uh, on phone calls, on Zoom, and hopefully as soon as possible back face-to-face with Mm -hmm. that top list of influencers. And as you've heard me talk about, um, the most important function, particularly with VC-backed venture, you know, uh, tech firms, is the marketing function. Ed Roberts' research at MIT and the high-tech uh, firms, when he compared those that were super successful versus those that weren't as, one of the keys was a strong marketing function. And as a result, Steve Jobs was prescient in bringing in early Regis McKenna. Regis was the marketing guru for Apple, Intel, Genentech, and for me. I cold called him in 1983 as I was going to build the world's largest entrepreneurship organization. And he agreed to take me on as a a free client. He still kids me today. I was his only free client in history. (laughs) He assigned a young guy, Rich Moran, who went on to be a VC and successful entrepreneur and president of Menlo College, almost killed him. In fact, I got a call with Rich tomorrow. We've stayed in touch over all these almost 40 years. And he said, look, you got to do two things. You have to have first a marketing meeting. And that's, it's not strange then that the only function Steve Jobs chaired when he came back to Apple was the marketing function, which was a three-hour meeting every Wednesday afternoon. And then he said, the number two, what you've got to do in that meeting is identify that top list of influencers. And for most of us, you start with the list of 25. It eventually Mm -hmm. expands to about 250. But look, every industry is small. And if you can figure out who are all the key players and then build relationships, bridges, get their brands to bolt onto your brands, get the right reference clients, then your job as the CEO 
the chief energy officer is to spend hours every week breaking bread in communication with and contact with those influencers. So for instance, I've been traveling since last September, almost every week I've been on an airplane. And just a few weeks ago, I had a chance to fly to Boulder, Colorado and have dinner with Monty Moran. Monty scaled Chipotle to about 23 billion in market cap. Now I could have had a phone call with him and I did initially. We could do a Zoom, but I'm telling you, breaking bread with him for three hours, a guy that may be in line to be a future president of the United States, what is more important for me to do than that, than the other hundred things on my list? So summarize, make your list of influencers, all industries are small, and then you spend hours every day working that list. Love it. There is going a little bit to world-class leadership and assuring that we have the right people on the bus and the right people on the right seats for each stage of growth. We know that a business that is trying to double or triple revenues every single year, uh, of course, not forgetting the profitability, as you uh, wisely said, um, might need some replacement in some of the seats. And it's really important also to not change too many seats. And I think that I've learned this with VC-backed companies, because if you change too many seats, you need to build kind of a new team for the next stage of growth, and it will take time to build that team. So I think that sometimes we underestimate the importance of building the team because we can have stars in each seat, but if they are not, if they don't behave like a team, especially in times of diversity and it always happens in business, uh, we will not be able to scale. Well, Right on, Mike. And I, I think the first thing uh, that I appreciate Andreessen Horowitz, you know, I consider one of the top VC, if not the top VC in the, in the world, or non-VC VC. Uh, I love the fact that they really made the decision to keep the entrepreneur in place, that it was easier to teach the entrepreneur how to be a CEO than it was to try to get a CEO in that was going to be entrepreneurial. And I think that's critical. And if you look at the stock market, the companies that are still led by the founder uh, have had the best run in the stock market than the companies where they had brought in an outsider. And so we're talking about Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Oracles, the Salesforces, you know, those kind of companies. Um, and that's why I think it's important to, to really be careful as a VC replacing out the entrepreneur. For the rest of the team, um, it's, they really have to pass three tests. And this is what using our function accountability chart. First, they shouldn't need managed. I mean, if you feel like you've got to look over their shoulder, your head of marketing, your head of operations, <laughs> your CTO, you, you've got the wrong person. Number two, they do have to fit your culture and the right place on the S-curve. Yeah. Uh, we have what's kind of called the 1-3 rule, and Clay Mask uh, tried uh, to you know, beat us in this idea, and then it, he failed and, and learned his own lesson, is the company that can get you from, say, a million to three can't get you to 10. And the team that gets you from 10 to 30 is really hard to get you to 100. And Michael Dell even saw that when he hit the billion mark, and Basically, the board made him fire everyone but Michael, and that's when he brought a team in that helped him get from a billion up past, you know, in this case, 50 billion. So there, 
you've got to make sure you've got the team that fits the right part on the S curve. And then the third test, which I actually think is the simplest of the three, is are they continuing to wow you? Is your head of operations like, wow, like, wow, that is clever what you came up with. That's better than I could have done. Or your head of marketing or your head of any of those key functions. And so, you know, in summary, they shouldn't need managed. Uh, they need to fit the right timing of the S-curve. And number three, they should wow you. And to the extent that they're not passing those tests, that's when you're in the medium box and you've got to make some decisions. And as you suggested, even when Michael Dell came back to Dell to save his baby like Steve Jobs did, uh, even though he shuffled internally a lot of the team, he only brought in one outsider. And that was Mark Jarvis, the marketing guy from Oracle that came in to power up his marketing back in 2007, because it does take time to inculcate, bring into the culture that new person. And so uh, sometimes you got to do a wholesale change out, but uh, it's pretty rare. Absolutely. Great, 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 great point. So, and uh, you also touched that, but there are that stage where it is also important to work on the process side of the business or on the pace according to the scaling up methodology. But sometimes we are asking to the CEO to create that structure and as the CEO visionary kind of entrepreneurial personality, it is not the right way. So bringing a, a COO on board, might be the best way uh, to move forward. And in, in that sense, what do you think is the, the right timing or the right moment to bring uh, a CEO on board? I get this question so many times. <laughs> well, as I like to say, every Steve Jobs needs a Tim Cook. Uh, you need to have the person who eats, lives, breathes, and sleeps operations and execution. So Steve can come up with the product that people want 10 million in the stores on Monday, but it took Tim Cook to make sure there were 10 million phones in the stores on Monday. And so I think it's most important, if you can, day one. It's one of the reasons why Brad Fell, Brad was a student of mine in that very first MIT Birthing Giants program, 91, 92, Brad went on to co-found Techstars, uh, which is a you know global organization today. And one of the rules in Techstars is you can't participate if you don't have a co-founder. No single founders are allowed. And so, and the research that Ed Roberts did at MIT is that co-founders did better than single, three did better than two, like you saw at Airbnb, four did better than three, and five did better than four, and then you run out of data points. And so Microsoft was founded with co-founders, Google was founded with co-founders, I'd say Mark Zuckerberg with his support that he had of, I just went blank on his name. Um, but from the beginning, you need somebody inside and somebody outside. Stuart Moore and Jerry Greenberg at Sapien. Jerry was the kind of strategy creator. Stuart Moore internally at Sapien was the one who drove the process in the organization. So you need it, I think, day one or as Absolutely. soon as possible. Absolutely. And something that is really important there is also the having clear rocks or nowadays we are talking a lot about OKRs, but also the rituals in place. And 
I believe it's it's really because of the importance of communication, right? Uh, especially as the company grows and grows and grows, having those dailies, those weeklies, monthlies, quarterlies, annual rhythms in place uh, are really important. But it seems obvious for a lot of companies, but really making them work, uh, it's where the secret lies, right? I've seen you kind of demonstrating uh, in the front of an audience how to do a proper daily, yes. but would, would you like to give some insights on the importance of the rituals and how to really manage rituals effectively? Yeah, well, first you have to believe in it. And and if you wanna move faster, you need to pulse faster. And as you suggested, the number one issue, whenever you get two people or more together is communication. Anyone who's in a relationship, particularly <laughs> a long-term relationship gets that. And what I thought was instructive is again, when we hosted Nate, the co-founder of Airbnb on our virtual summit a few months ago, just before they were going public, Nate shared that when the crisis hit, they lost a billion dollars worth of bookings overnight. And the first thing they decided to do, Nate and his two co-founders and the senior team was to go into a daily meeting, seven days a week, not just five days a week, seven days a week. And he wow. said, it was, when I asked him, what was the single most important thing you did? It was that. And he shared it with our global audience. And that's what allowed them to power through the pandemic and be prepared for a very successful IPO. It's also the exact same thing Steve Jobs did when he came back to Apple, which I wrote about in my second book, Greatest Business Decisions. And the first thing Steve did was take their conference room converted into a war room or situation room, and they went into a daily meeting in order to power that company through its crisis. And he continued it. Every day he had lunch with Jonathan Ive and the design and or the design team, because he knew at the heart of Apple's success, and that's what you have to figure out is what's the soul of your business. And for Apple, it's design. And so he spent his time daily not weekly, not monthly, daily, really pushing hard on that aspect of the business. So first, you actually have to believe uh, that the daily is powerful. Number two, to experience the 10x factor, which is every minute you're in a daily will save everybody 10 minutes. So if that daily is an hour is 10 minutes, you're going to save everyone over an hour and a half of time. And there is no better ROI in terms of your day than that daily. And then, of course, we teach what is the agenda and how to run it properly. And the key is to make sure you share specifics instead of generalities so that people are hearing what's going on. What, one more thing, just, just to be a little paleo here, we have to realize as humans, the most powerful sense that we have had for 200,000 years in order to survive and thrive has been our hearing. We could hear the beast that we either needed to go after or was coming after us way before we could see them, smell them, or taste them, or they were tasting us. And so this, these bromides about we have two ears and one mouth, it's so powerful to hear the data, to hear names, to hear what's going on as a way for your brain then to much more quickly see the patterns so you can make better decisions than just staring at Excel spreadsheets. We've had 
the ability to speak for 100,000 years. We've only had Excel spreadsheets for about 35 years. So I know what we are so much more highly developed in, in surviving and thriving, and that is hearing the data, not staring at these accounting spreadsheets. This is incredible. We have kind of covered strategy, uh, people, and uh, execution. But sometimes, especially CEOs nowadays, hate to talk about strategy uh, and leadership teams uh, as well. And a lot of the execution problems start with strategy. As you said, if there is not a clear uh, business model, a clear seven strata, uh, it's, it's really difficult to execute because there is too, mu too much complexity that we can be there uh, 48 hours per day, uh, <laughs> kind of two days in every single day, that will not be able to do uh, everything. And what we see, um, there is a very interesting quote that says that startups die of starvation and scale-ups die of uh, indigestion, right? They are trying to do too many things at the same time. So how would you encourage uh, a CEO and the leadership team to work a little bit more, especially on their quarterlies, on those strategic tools that are so important and also make them win a lot of time? Yeah. Well, you know, at the, at the heart of our work, Mike, are these three fundamental disciplines, priorities, data, and meeting rhythms. And if a company is not achieving what it thinks it can achieve, it's just one of three issues. I've got too many priorities or the wrong one. I'm not looking at the right data and I'm not getting in a room and talking about it frequently enough. And so it really comes back to Intel. All markets and all wars have always been won through better Intel. I, I enjoyed the Tehran series. It was on Apple Plus during the pandemic. And again, like every one of those stories, it comes down to which side has the better firsthand intel. And so that's why it's critical to have that intel in order to be able to set the right focus and priority. And so that really comes down to two things. If Mark, and that's where marketing comes in. Marketing's job is to gather that quantitative and qualitative intel that you're able then to feed into your decision-making process so you know when the curb's coming before anyone else does. It's also why the second most important function in a company, if you wanna scale ironically, is accounting. And what's interesting is most scale-ups, even startups, but particularly scale-ups, underinvest in accounting because they see it as just this necessary evil to get the VCs some financial numbers that they might need on a regular basis, when in fact, if you really can see where you're making money and where you're not uh, sooner than later, then you know where to focus. And that's what happened when Michael Dell hit the wall. The board, the, they brought in his first really adult supervisor, Tom Meredith, 15 years his senior, as the first real CFO in the company. And the first thing that Tom did, and I feature him in my book, Scaling Up, I'm a good friend of Tom's, is he gathered up the data that had never really been pulled together inside Dell so they could see where they were making money and where they want, what were the most, what were the best channels? What were the best product lines? What were the best customers? And then they went off site because Michael Dell is a brilliant guy. You give him that data, he could see immediately what changes they needed to make. And that's when the company went from a billion to 50 billion 
pretty much overnight. So it's data, intel, quantitative and qualitative data that you need to be gathering and looking at daily. And that's one of the agenda items in the daily huddle that can then give you at the end of the day, the best gut feel. And look, we have to run these businesses on our gut, but we need to make sure our gut is informed <laughs> so that we can trust those decisions that we're making. Exactly. So we are coming to the end of the of the show, and uh, I feel that we would spend uh, hours talking about scaling up. But what should I have asked you that I didn't ask? Where can they get that hours? In fact, you know, <laughs> we have our scaling up masterclass that we've got 200 executives going through all the time. We just had a senior team of a $3 billion company uh, bring us in in order to take them through these, these tools. And so we've got one coming up for Asia. And then the one for the Europeans is going to be May 18th through 20th. And it's just six hours online, 90 minutes for each one of the people, strategy, execution, and cash. And I would hope that the listeners uh, will take advantage of that. It's like $250 a piece. So it's, it, it's, uh, it's hardly anything compared to the unbelievable results like you saw with our e-commerce client. If you can take from eight to 40 million, 41 million in bottom line, that's uh, significant. So, uh, you know, and, and they can go to scalingup.com, the name of the exactly. book, the name of our company to get all of our free tools and all of those things. So I'm just hoping folks will take it serious and dig into these important tools that again, have helped about 80,000 companies around the globe scale up. Absolutely. Strongly recommend it. Yeah. Vern, uh, if you would have the opportunity to have a coffee with your younger Vern, uh, kind of 40 or 20 years ago, you decide when, when you were kind of starting scaling up, what advice would you offer to your younger Vern at, at that stage? Well, if it was a younger Vern who's alive right now, I'm 20 right now, it would be to buy not build. Uh, it is so hard to get from zero to one. And so, you know, our partner, John Ratliff, who heads up our global coaching organization, he scaled through 24 buy side acquisitions. And right now, the trend on the planet is the baby boom. And they all have about 3 million companies that they need to get rid of. And so I'm encouraging young people, as Greg Brenneman's son did, uh, the great turnaround artist, his son bought a company and is starting from a few million in revenue instead of trying to build from scratch. So I would build through acquisition instead of through just organic growth. That to me would be the most, it's what we're, we're talking to college students about right now. Love it, great, great insight again. Vern, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today and for sharing your wisdom with, with the community. Thank you so much. You got it, thanks Mike. And to our community, we keep bringing you the best of the best. It was Vern Arnish, the CEO of Scaling Up and the founder of Entrepreneurs Organization, sharing with you amazing wisdom. Take care and see you soon. And of course, keep scaling. <laughs>